News of the Times History Compilation Special Doctors of Death Welcome to News of the Times and this month's compilation special looking at some of the most notorious doctors in history who made murder their sideline. Our first case takes place in 1855 with Dr. William Palmer referred to by the literary character of Sherlock Holmes as the Prince of Poisoners. Dr. Palmer loved the horses, requiring a steady stream of cash to keep up with his accumulated debts. Our second case from 1859 looks at the life and trial of Dr. Smethurst. Married, Smethurst begins an intimacy with an independent woman of property, who he then bigamously marries. He starts to fall from the moment of her marriage to Smethurst. Our third case, from 1863, Scotland, involves the dark world of Dr. Pritchard, also referenced by the redoubtable Sherlock Holmes. Pritchard liked the women and liked to spend. His life involves mysterious fires for insurance and mysterious deaths. Our final case in today's episode takes place in 1935, involving Mr. Buck Ruxton, now referred to as the Jigsaw Murderer. Ruxton had a tempestuous relationship with his wife, with strong feelings of jealousy, and then one day Ruxton snaps. It took police quite some time to find all the body parts. Four historical cases of doctors of death is today's history compilation episode. We hope you enjoy the show. Case 1, Dr. William Palmer, 1855. Dr. William Palmer. Who was Dr. William Palmer? He was born on August the 6th, 1824, and was born and bred in Rugeley. He came from a large family of eight children, of which he was the sixth child. His father owned a lumber yard. There were many reports intimating that he was his mother's favourite. Upon his death, when William was twelve, all children inherited £7,000 each. Palmer's mother, Sarah, was left £26,000 at the father's death. Palmer initially worked as a chemist's apprentice, but was dismissed under the allegations of monetary theft. His mother came and saved the day, paying off the sum taken and begging that her son not be convicted. Palmer was let go with no further action. At his next job as an apprentice to a village doctor, Palmer was once again caught stealing and was summarily fired. In 1844, Palmer became a pupil at the Stafford Infirmary to attempt to qualify as a physician. Weak-willed Palmer found the studying that was required to be laborious. His mother came to his aid and sourced and paid for a tutor to help Palmer to pass his exams, with the prize of £100 to the tutor, if he succeeded. It worked. 
and Palmer became a qualified doctor in August 1846. Upon graduation, Palmer returned to Staffordshire, where his procession of deaths began. The Death's Chronology Palmer was either an extremely unfortunate man, or there was something amiss in the Palmer family and extended family. Abley's death, Palmer's first kill, sometime in 1846, upon his return to Staffordshire, Palmer met a George Abley at a pub in Little Haywood. The two drank together. A drinking game with a side wager was suggested. As we can see from his history, Palmer had a strong addiction to any type of gambling, although horse racing seems to have been his preference. Nevertheless, the drinking wager went on between them and Abley won the bet. But, very shortly afterwards, Abley became ill and was found unconscious outside the pub. Nothing was thought of it at the time, only retrospectively with Palmer's poisonous touch did the death become suspect. Dr. Palmer returned to his hometown of Rugeley and married Anne Thornton on October the 7th, 1847. Anne was an heiress of the Noah's Ark hostelry. Her guardian was opposed to the marriage, but Palmer was persistent and they married in October the 7th, 1847. Palmer began borrowing money from his wealthy mother-in-law, Mary Thornton, within a year. Mary was a known dipsomaniac, which was why Anne, known as Annie, had a guardian who controlled her estate. Mary had considerable money of her own. On January the 6th, 1849, Palmer brought Annie's mother, Mary, to his house, stating that he had found her unconscious and suffering from alcohol poisoning at her own house. On January the 18th, 1849, Mary died. She had only been in the Palmer household less than two weeks before her death. Palmer expected a payout to his wife of some £12,000 from Mary's death, but was highly upset to find that no money from her estate would be transferred to his wife Annie. Palmer was reportedly furious. Leonard Bladen in May 1850, as a keen horse racing and gambling enthusiast, Palmer borrowed the then considerable amount of £600 from a Leonard Bladen. Palmer and Bladen were known to have gone to the Chester races, where Bladen did very well and Palmer lost. After the races, Palmer invited Bladen to his house in Rugeley where he promised to pay him back the £600 owed to him. Before his departure to Palmer's house, Bladen sent a note to his wife telling her of his win at the races and how he was expecting to come back home with close to £1,000 in his pocket. 
It was later reported that Bladen had passed an exceptionally painful death at Palmer's house. No paper record of his loan to Palmer could be found by his wife. His wife was also surprised to find only £15 on his person upon his death. Palmer signed the death certificate, stating that Bladen had died of an internal abscess from a previous injury. Palmer's Household Palmer's first child was called William and was born in 1850. This child was the only child to survive from the five children Palmer and Annie had together. The other four children all died between the ages of two and a half months old to four hours old. Palmer once again signed the death certificates recording that each of his children's deaths were due to convulsions. A cleaning lady in the service to the Palmers quit after the death of the fourth child, sharing at the local pub that Palmer had done away with his children in order to not have to pay for raising them. Spiralling Debts In 1854, with the now frequent cycle of spiralling debts and hounding creditors once again overriding Palmer's life, Palmer forged his mother's signature to pay off creditors and his outstanding debt by the sum of £2,000. At this time, Palmer was said to have owed £12,500 to one creditor and £10,400 to another. This was a considerable sum in 1854. Around this time, he also insured his wife Annie for £13,000. Annie died shortly after the one and only insurance premium was paid out. Her initial chill turned to violent vomiting under the loving care of her husband Palmer. She died on the 29th of September, 1854. Palmer signed Annie's death certificate, recording her death as due to cholera, an illness that was running rampant in England at that time. Supposedly heartbroken by Annie's death, he sadly collected the £13,000 insurance payout. It's worth noting that the Palmer's 18-year-old housemaid, Eliza Tharm, gave birth to an illegitimate son nine months after Annie's death. That child also died five months later. In early 1855, Palmer took out an insurance policy on his brother Walter. Walter was a notorious alcoholic. The six different insurance schemes on Walter's life totaled a potential payout of £82,000 to Palmer. Walter was dried out prior to the required medical examinations in order to be considered fit for life insurance. Once Walter had passed the medical tests, a single premium payment was paid before Walter promptly and conveniently died on the 16th of August, 1855. However, the insurance company, now suspicious given the close time proximity 
that the death of Palmer's Annie were more reluctant to pay out until the body of his brother could be inspected. Upon the insurance investigators arriving to inspect Walter's body, they were surprised to find that Palmer had ordered his brother Walter's coffin to be sealed. Also, the insurance company found it odd that the payout was to go to Palmer rather than Walter's own wife. With some more digging, the investigators found that Palmer had also taken out an insurance policy on one of his employees, George Bates, although Bates had been unaware of the insurance policy. The policy was removed and Bates survived. No money was paid out for Walter's death by the insurance company, with some vague threats of potential prosecution which was not carried out. The Crime That Captured Palmer In December 1855, once again, with mounting debts and screaming creditors, Palmer attended the races with his friend John Cook in Shrewsbury. They had travelled from Rugeley some fifty miles away. John Cook's bet at the track paid off, and he won a staggering £3,000. Palmer lost again, adding to his already burdensome maelstrom of debt and increasing his risk with the looming moneylenders. Simultaneously, he received yet another letter from one of the moneylenders threatening him. After the race drinks celebration, Cook complained that his gin burned his throat. He became violently ill afterwards, but recovered. Cook had taken a room in a hotel across from Palmer's house. Cook alternated to reviving from illness to then becoming violently ill. This pattern seemed to occur after he had anything to eat or drink. Cook died violently in convulsions on the 21st of November, 1855. In agony, he screamed that he was suffocating. The day after Cook died, Cook's stepfather, William Stevens, arrived. Stevens seems to have been sceptical at once regarding his son-in-law's death. This was compounded by finding that Palmer had already ordered the coffin and was arranging Cook's funeral. Palmer had also succeeded in getting a death certificate from 80-year-old Dr. Barnford listing Cook's death as apoplexy. During the later trial, it was implied that Dr. Barnford was suffering from dementia. The housemaid reported that Palmer had given medicine and broth to Cook. The housemaid had tasted the broth by putting her finger into it to taste. She reported that it had made her violently ill. Palmer told the father-in-law that Cook had £4,000 of debt. Palmer added that Cook's betting papers had become lost. The father-in-law became highly suspicious and, as next of kin, requested a post-mortem. Cook's post-mortem. 
there seemed to be clear interference from Dr. William Palmer in regards to the post-mortem of his now-dead friend, John Cook. Dr. Palmer oversaw the examination being conducted by a medical student. It was reported that Dr. Palmer accidentally bumped into the student conducting the examination, thereby causing some spilling of the stomach contents. It was also reported that Palmer had taken some of the remaining stomach contents off into a jar for safekeeping. A boy working as a laboratory helper was supposedly bribed to overturn the contents on a cart awaiting analysis and smash the bottles. This failed. With two previous attempts failing, a postmaster was approached to divert the analysis report that was on its way to the county coroner. This also failed. Palmer then wrote directly to the coroner requesting that a verdict of natural causes for Cook's death be given. He had enclosed a ten-pound note. The coroner was an honest man and reported the bribe to the authorities. The coroner stated that he believed Cook to have been poisoned and an inquest was held, although in actuality no poison had been found in Cook's botched post-mortem. It would appear that Palmer's many attempts to circumnavigate the post-mortem results implicated him rather than anything actually found within the post-mortem itself. Suspicions grew regarding the list of unhappy deaths in Palmer's immediate family. Bodies were ordered to be exhumed. Walter's body was in such a state of purification that it was impossible for any accurate investigation to take place. Annie's post-mortem examination was more revealing and showed signs of her having been poisoned with antimony, a metallic poison similar to arsenic and which had been used as a poison for centuries. It was rife in all her body organs, indicating a slow poisoning procedure. The Inquest December the 15th, 1855 At the inquest, the jury returned the verdict. The deceased died of poison, willfully administered to him by William Palmer. Palmer was formally arrested for the forgery of his mother's signature and for the murder of his friend, John Cook. Palmer was held at the Stafford Prison to await trial. Trial at the Old Bailey Palmer's trial at the Old Bailey in 1856 was considered the trial of the year. The presiding judge was Lord Chief Justice John Campbell, 1st Baron Campbell. The poison in question with Cook was strychnine, a different poison used from the usual arsenic one found in poisoning cases at that time. This new poison that had been used, the crime involving the bourgeois class and the potential volume of killings that may have taken place from Dr. Palmer, all helped to make the case 
a sensational drama of its day. Palmer could only be tried for one murder, even if others were suspected, and the trial of Palmer's murder of Cook commenced. No definitive trace of poison could be found in Cook's body, although considerable circumstantial evidence was given as to why this might be the case, given that Palmer had overseen Cook's post-mortem personally. The prosecution demonstrated clear motive with Palmer's considerable gambling debts and the now-known theft of James Cook's winnings. Also, it was proven that Palmer had purchased strychnine a few days before Cook's death. The circumstantial evidence included Elizabeth Mills, who worked at the inn where Cook was staying, said that as Cook was dying, Cook had accused Palmer of murder. Charles Newton, witness, told the jury that he had seen Palmer purchasing strychnine. Chemist Mr. Salt admitted selling strychnine in the belief that he was using it to poison a dog. The chemist admitted that he had failed to record the sale in his poisons book as required by law. Chemist Charles Roberts from another chemist shop admitted selling Palmer strychnine without noting the sale in his poisons book. Moneylender Thomas Pratt told the court that he had lent money to Palmer at 60% interest. Palmer's bank manager confirmed that Palmer's bank balance stood at £9 on the 3rd of November, 1855. Palmer's defence attempted to discredit any evidence given and to cast doubt due to the substantial circumstantial evidence. Ultimately, after the twelve-day-long trial, the jury only required a little over an hour to find Dr. William Palmer guilty of murder. The judge pronounced execution by hanging, and Dr. Palmer was said to have no reaction to his sentence. At no point did Palmer admit his crimes, and he seemed wholly unconvinced about his impending execution. I have nothing to say, and nothing shall I say, was his inevitable reply to all entreaties for him to confess his crimes. Some 30,000 people attended Stafford Prison to see Dr. William Palmer's public execution. His executioner was George Smith, otherwise known as Throttler Smith. Trains throughout were crowded as spectators came from all across the country to see his death. Public houses were full, platforms were erected for spectators willing to pay a guinea. Every space possible was packed with spectators to watch Dr. William Palmer's hang. As a real spectator's event, ghoulish souvenirs were on sale, such as sections of the rope the noose was made from on sale for a guinea each. Reportedly, as Palmer stepped onto the gallows to be hung, he looked at the trapdoor and said, Are you sure it's safe?
We at News of the Times do like a bit of gallows humour. Case 2, Dr Smethurst, 1859. It is 1859 and poorly Banks, an independent woman of property, dies after a few months of marriage to Dr Thomas Smethurst. But wait, Dr Smethurst is already married to a woman 20 years older than himself. She is now in her 70s. The pair move to a different city where they are not known, and she is away from friends and family. She is unwell, and Dr. Smethurst refuses to let anyone care for his dear wife but himself. Strange mixtures are seen, and her food preparation is away from any prying eyes. Also, conveniently, a will has been made on her death, handling over all her property and estate to Dr. Smethurst. All of this would seem to be pointing in one direction, but this case, with its twists and turns, has an unsuspected conclusion. In 1859, the case of the death of Isabella Banks and Dr. Smethurst gripped the papers and brought to light questions regarding the English judicial system and the trustworthiness of the modern medical testing system of 1859. About Smethurst. Smethurst was the son of a country tradesman. He was bestowed an excellent education and was generously kept well supplied with money while he was completing his studies. Smethurst was born in 1804, and at the age of 24, he was married on the 10th of March, 1828, at St. Mark's Church in Kennington, to Mary Durham, whose age at the time was 44. When she married young Smethurst, she had a son, 21 years of age, just three years younger than her new husband. After some considerable time, Smethurst and his wife settled down in Margate, where he kept a chemist's shop and was well known as a very moody and melancholy man. Eventually, he became proprietor of a hydropathetic establishment and in course of time a surgeon and acted as a regular medical practitioner. After residing with his wife thirty years, Mr. and Mrs. Smethurst went to reside at a boarding house in Rifle Terrace, Bayswater, and there they continued till 1858. Smethurst was described as a person of small stature and insignificant appearance, with a reddish-brown moustache. The Affair In September of that year, Miss Isabella Banks, an independent lady forty-three years of age, went to reside at the same lodging-house as Dr. and Mrs. Smethurst. An intimacy sprang up between Miss Banks and Dr. Smethurst. His wife noticed the familiarity between them and became exceedingly jealous. She complained to the landlady of what she considered Miss Banks's too great familiarity with her husband. Miss Banks then left Bayswater and went to reside at Richmond, and for a short time Dr. Smethurst 
who was then fifty-three, was again left with his wife, who was now seventy-three. On the ninth of December, 1858, Mr. Smethurst left his wife and married Miss Isabella Banks at Battersea Church, and they afterwards resided together at Richmond as a man and wife. There had been no divorce from his first wife, so the marriage was bigamous. In the spring of 1859, Miss Banks was taken ill, and on the 8th of May of that year she died under circumstances which caused Dr. Smethurst to be arrested on the charge of murdering her by administering poison to her. From the Globe on the 9th of May, 1859, the alleged poisoning at Richmond, the inquiry into the cause of the death of Isabella Banks, who died recently under circumstances leading to the suspicion that she had been poisoned, was resumed on Saturday at the courthouse in Richmond. A fact has transpired since the first examination, which throws additional suspicion on Dr. Smethurst. The deceased, Isabella Banks, having, it appears, only completed her will in favour of the accused few weeks before her death. Professor Taylor of Guy's Hospital was the first to detect the presence of arsenic in an evacuation from her diarrhoea, which was sent to him for analysis by the doctors in Richmond who had been unable to account for the continued illness of the deceased and the inefficiency of the medicines that they were administering. Dr. Julius, the doctor at Richmond, considered it his duty to lay the facts before a magistrate, and on the death of the lady a post-mortem examination was made by Mr. Richard Barwell of Charing Cross Hospital and Mr. Palmer, surgeon of Mortlake. The intestinal canal and stomach were placed in a jar, sealed, and forwarded to Dr. Taylor. Professor Taylor tested the bottle number two, the result confirming his previous conclusion that there was decidedly arsenic in the liquid. The quantity of arsenic was very small, less than a quarter of a grain in the four ounces. The effect of small doses continually administered would be to cause great irritation of the bowels, vomiting, and purging of mucus and blood with biliary matter. The systems under which the lady had suffered were precisely such as would be produced by such treatment, while the medicine which had been given would have had the opposite effect. Dr. Smethurst alone waited on the lady, and he gave her whatever she took in the way of food or medicine. He was constantly in attendance. The dinner and other meals were prepared downstairs, with the doctor either taking it upstairs or relieving the landlady of it at the room door. The above are the whole of the facts adduced to the present stage of the proceedings. The coroner has signified his intention to communicate with the Secretary of State for the Home Department in order that Dr. Smethurst, who is under re remand in Horsemonger Lane Jail, 
may be present at the adjourned stage of the Inquisition. The case became sensational for a number of reasons. A professional doctor and his aged wife, now 74, his well-known illicit affair with a wealthy nine-year younger woman leading to a bigamous marriage for Dr. Smethurst. The rapid illness and decline of Miss Banks upon her marriage with Dr. Smethurst. And the making of a will at the behest of Dr. Smethurst very shortly before her death, leaving all of her estate worth approximately £280,000 to her new bigamous husband. Questions arose regarding the cause of Miss Banks's ill health from other doctors. There were findings of arsenic from her diarrhoea. There were findings of arsenic from her diarrhoea. All contributed to painting a rather grim situation for Dr. Smethurst, who was arrested and remanded. From the St. James's Chronicle, the 10th of May, 1859, the suspected murder by poison at Richmond. On Saturday, a great number of persons assembled at the courthouse with a view of obtaining admission for the purpose of hearing the expected re-examination of Dr. Smethurst, a temporary resident of Richmond who stands charged with the willful murder of Isabella Banks, with whom he was living, by the administration of arsenic being found in small quantities. Owing, however, to the analysis not being completed, the case was further adjourned. Since the disease of the unfortunate lady's additional facts have come to light, warranting very strong suspicion of the guilt of the accused. It appears that about a week since, a solicitor in town completed the will of the deceased in favour of the accused, and which, it is believed, will be produced as evidence in the next examination. The result of the post-mortem examination showed that the deceased was entocyte pregnant. The following are the entire facts of this extraordinary case, which have not yet appeared. The deceased was a single lady of 36 years of age, and Dr. Thomas Smethurst, nine years her senior, and both possessed of considerable property. Dr. Smethurst and his wife were residing at a boarding house in Bayswater, as was also the deceased. An intimacy sprung up between Dr. Smethurst and the deceased, Isabella Banks, leading to an elopement, and after visiting Brighton and other fashionable places, they at length came to Richmond about nine weeks since. On the 3rd of April, Dr. F. G. Julius was called in to attend the deceased Isabella Banks, who was suffering from diarrhoea and vomiting. He believed it was bilious diarrhoea. There was nothing to lead to suspicion. He administered various treatments in conjunction with Dr. Smethurst and with his sanction. On the 18th, he became puzzled and requested his partner, Mr. Bird, to go in, the resulting being an opinion that something was being given to continue the irritation. The lady got worse 
with the incessant vomiting and diarrhoea. Dr. Smethurst removed the vomitings and evacuations from the room. Nothing, apparently, could exceed his care and attention. A prescription in accordance with the treatment was already being pursued and was calculated to allay the irritation, but the symptoms became aggravated. On the following Friday, during Dr. Smethurst's brief temporary absence, a portion of an evacuation just passed was placed in two bottles and sent to London for analysis. The bottle fell under the notice of Professor Taylor, who, upon testing, found the presence of arsenic. Dr. Julius then sought the full magisterial authority for a full analysation, which was obtained. The results were that the sample that had been given contained a small quantity of arsenic. Professor Taylor continued, Considering the symptoms from which Mrs. Smethurst, as she was known by the medical practitioners, has suffered, and the discovery of arsenic in the evacuations of her bowels, I am of the opinion that this lady is suffering from the effects of arsenical poisoning. I would suggest that she be placed immediately under the care of some trusted person by whom alone all articles of food and medicine should be administered. I believe that her life will depend upon that immediate and strict adoption of these precautions. As arsenic is now in her body and is now passing from her in the discharge from her bowels. Signed, Alfred S. Taylor, Professor of Chemistry and Medical Jurisprudence in Guy's Hospital. Immediately on receipt of this opinion, deemingly the lady's life in danger, Dr. Julius felt it was incumbent on him to lay the case before a magistrate, and upon his testimony a warrant was made against Dr. Smethurst, and he was apprehended on the charge of attempting to poison. The case was remanded, Dr. Smethurst being granted bail. The following morning the lady died, and from what had subsequently transpired, it was deemed expedient to issue a warrant and apprehend Dr. Smethurst on the charge of willful murder, which was accordingly done. Post-mortem. An examination was ordered of the body. Externally, the body exhibited no particular appearance other than those of an ordinary death. The intestinal canal and stomach were placed in a jar and forwarded to Dr. Taylor. The cause of death was believed to be chronic inflammation of the stomach and the bowels. From the testing, the result confirmed his previous conclusion that there was decidedly arsenic in the liquid within the gut that he had received. But no antimony or mercury, the quantity of arsenic was very small, less than a grain in four ounces, and the effect of small doses continually administered would be to cause a great irritation of the bowels and vomiting and purging of mucus and blood. Evidence of the Landlady 
When the lady arrived at the new lodging house on Friday the 16th of April, she was in delicate health and went to bed directly. Dr. Smethurst alone waited on the lady, and he alone gave her whatever she took in the way of food or medicine. He was constantly in attendance. The dinner and other meals were prepared downstairs. Dr. Smethurst either taking it upstairs or relieving the landlady of it at the room door. The landlady never entered the room. Dr. Smethurst acted quickly and had friends and family rally round and got him some of the finest legal representation that money could buy. In the meantime, more evidence was collected for the trial to come. The Sister of Isabella Banks Miss Louisa Banks, the sister of the deceased, visited the now deceased Isabella and was introduced to her husband, Dr. Smethurst. She went to call on her sister in Richmond. When she saw her sister was seemed very ill and agitated, she was not with her for any time alone. While she was there, Dr. Smethurst remained in the bedroom the whole of the time, with the exception of a minute or two. Some conversation took place about money matters, and Dr. Smethurst did not think that Isabella had had as much from her dividends as she ought to have from her father's will. Louisa replied that they both received the same amount, namely £71, which was correct. While she was in the room, she noticed some tapioca in a cup. Her sister said it had a nasty taste and that she would like her, Louisa, to make some for her. Dr. Smethurst said that he would rather she did not, as it would interfere with the landlady. During the day, she saw Dr. Smethurst give her sister some soda water and a saline draught. It was a white mixture. She did not see it mixed. It was mixed outside the room. He went outside of the room, came back in a minute or two, and then... The draught was mixed, and he gave it to the sister. Isabella was sick immediately. He then gave Isabella some milk that came from another part of the room, and after that, Isabella was very sick. Louisa left about 6 p.m. and said she would come back and visit the following week. Various letters were passed between Louisa and Dr. Smethurst, with Dr. Smethurst stating that her visit would be very tiring to the weak powers of her sister, Isabella. In consequence, she refrained from going down to visit. On the 27th of April, she received another letter from Dr. Smethurst, stating that her sister was still very poorly and that he was bringing in a Dr. Todd of King's College Hospital. Isabella was ordered solitude and quiet. On the 29th of April, she wrote stating that she very much wished to see her sister. Dr. Smethurst wrote back that she was very much worse. It was impossible to stop the sickness. He did not wish to stop her calling, but only to consider the critical state of his dearest Bella. She went down on the following Sunday and saw her sister, who was in a very bad state. Isabella knew her but was unable to speak, and simply held her hand out to her. 
Louisa only remained in the room a few minutes when Dr. Smethurst told her to go down as her sister was too ill to have her there. She brought some soup in a jelly, which she warmed and was going to give it to her. Dr. Smethurst took it from her and then took two teaspoons full from it, put some warm water into it and then took it out of the room to cool. When he got outside, she could hear him stirring it round and round. He then brought it in to her sister, and she brought it up immediately. Dr. Smethurst then said that some pills that Dr. Todd had given her had made her a great deal worse, and had caused her to complain of a burning sensation all over her body. At about eleven o'clock at night she proposed that she should remain all night with her sister, but Dr. Smethurst objected and said that he would rather she didn't. He would rather wait on Isabella himself. Louisa had taken a cottage nearby, and it was agreed that she would be by the following morning at half-past nine. She came but Dr. Smethurst wanted to send her to London to get some fresh medicine to try. He did not wish to send someone for it. He wished her to go herself. She acquiesced. Upon her returning, Dr. Smethurst said Isabella was too ill to see her. Louisa continued. A constable then came, and Dr. Smethurst went away with him. He came back after a few hours and stated that Dr. Julian had been poisoning Isabella. While Dr. Smethurst was away with the police, Dr. Julian and a nurse was obtained, and from that time either she or the nurse waited upon her. Louisa remained up all night with her sister giving her food, and Dr. Smethurst remained downstairs. When she and the nurse started feeding her, there were further signs of retching. After the nurse came, she asked Dr. Smethurst to get some food out for the nurse, but he said he would not. He stated that she, Louisa, had now taken the responsibility of Isabella on her shoulders, and he should not get the nurse anything nor pay for anything for her. She and her sister both had £1,800 each. Her sister Isabella died on the 3rd of May. The Evidence of the Solicitor Dr. Frederick Sr. stated that he was a solicitor residing in Richmond. On Saturday, Dr. Smethurst, who was a stranger to him, came to his office and asked if he would go up to the hill and make a will for a lady who was too ill to come. He said he would go directly, but Dr. Smethurst said no, come tomorrow morning on Sunday. Dr. Smethurst came to fetch him on Sunday at 9 a.m. and asked him to come at once, as it was preferable to come before the medical men were to attend. Dr. Smethurst told him that although they lived as man and wife, they were not married. After that he took him upstairs to a bedroom where a lady lay in bed there. She did not say anything. She merely bowed and handed him a piece of paper that was under her pillow. 
a housemaid was brought up from downstairs to be a witness. Both the girl and Dr. Smether signed the documents as witnesses. The will was then read in which, with the exception of a brooch, she bequeaths all her real and personal property, estate and effects whatsoever to her sincere and beloved friend, Thomas Smethurst, doctor of medicine, for his own use, absolutely and forever, and she also appointed the said Thomas Smethurst sole executor of her will. It was then shown that in addition to the £1,800, she also had a life interest in another sum of £5,000, combined worth over a million pounds in 2023. The trial. After some initial delays, the trial restarted on the 15th of August. Searches were made for poisons in the room and on his person, but nothing is found despite the arsenic found in Isabella's evacuations and traces of antimony later found in her kidneys. It is suspected that Given that Smethurst was granted bail after the initial arrest, and knowing that Isabella was so far gone she was likely to die soon, Smethurst destroyed all traces of evidence of any of the poisons. From the Globe on the 15th of August, 1859, the trial of Dr. Smethurst. Dr. Smethurst was placed at the bar and the trial commenced, but owing to the illness of a juror, the second day, the proceedings were abruptly brought to close. On that occasion, Sergeant Ballantyne laid before the jury the evidence on which he relied for a conviction. He stated that the prisoner was a man of information and learning, and that to effect the murder he had availed himself of the knowledge he possessed, and made use of a slow and irritant poison which was administered by himself, until from the accumulation of poison and irritation the poor woman sunk and died. The prisoner, he proceeded to say, was a member of the medical profession, though what particular rank held he did not know, but had considerable knowledge of medicine, and was a married man, and he had a wife considerably older than himself, and who was now living. He introduced Dr. Smethurst, first living with his wife, at a very respectable lodging house, and while they were living there, Miss Isabella Banks also went there to reside. She was a lady of very respectable family, was possessed of property under her own control to the extent of £1,800, and in June 1858 she became possessed of a life interest in £5,000, which at her death went to the other members of her family. On the 9th of December, Miss Banks and the prisoner went to Battersea Church and got married, and then returned to their respective homes, where they stayed for a couple of days, and then went to reside together at Richmond. The date of the marriage with Miss Banks was on the 9th of December, 1858. They left their boarding house on the 11th. Nothing was heard of them till the 23rd of January, when Miss Louisa Banks, the sister of Miss Banks, 
who appeared to have been very fondly attached to her, received a letter from her, but not addressed from the place where they were living. About the 23rd of March her illness commenced, and when it had continued down to the 3rd of April, it was decided to have medical advice. The landlady advised calling Dr. Julius and his partner, Dr. Bird, who were the most eminent physicians in Richmond. Accordingly, her suggestion was adopted, and doctors Julius and Bird were called in, and the former treated her in the usual way for diarrhoea, the complaint he understood she was suffering from. Dr. Smethurst and family's investment in good legal counsel paid off. The defence was noted for being particularly eloquent. They brought in their own medical team who gave it their opinion that the symptoms of the deceased were more consistent with her tendency to sickness and to her then pregnant state. They also made considerable emphasis on the fact of no poison being found in the room or on the person of Dr. Smethurst. Summing up, the learned judge then summoned up the case and commented strongly on the conduct of the prisoner regarding the summoning of an attorney for the making of the will, that, together with his keeping her sister away from the room lest they might be spoken of, showed that he was fearful of running the risk of having the will revoked in favour of an affectionate sister. He thought it was a great mistake that after the prisoner had been once arrested that he should have been allowed to go free again until after the lady's death, and in the meantime have an opportunity to destroy all traces of poison if they existed. The Verdict The jury then retired to consider their verdict, and after an absence of three-quarters of an hour, they returned to the court with a verdict of guilty. The judge then assumed the black cap. The prisoner, before sentence of death was passed upon him, asked to be allowed to address the jury. The judge said that he could not allow him to do so except through his counsel. The prisoner, however, persisted, and a great scene ensued. He charged Dr. Julius with being his murderer. He alleged that the witness of the prosecution had distorted the real facts of the case. He said that he had a strong attachment to the deceased, and she had a strong affection for him. The Lord Chief Baron then, amidst constant interruptions by the prisoner, proceeded to pass the sentence of death. In doing so, he said it was one of the most horrible cases of murder ever heard of. The prisoner said Dr. Julius was his murderer, and called God to witness that he was innocent of the crime for which he had been found guilty. The judge said that the prisoner's assertions of his innocence were as false as many of the statements he had made. He had no doubt that the jury had come to the right conclusion, and the sentence of the court was that he then be taken to a place of execution and hanged by the neck till he was dead. From the Scotsman, the 20th of August, 1859, 
trial of Smedhurst, verdict and sentence. The Lord Chief Baron took his seat at the Central Criminal Court, London, yesterday, at nine o'clock, and Justice Willis sat with him. The learned judge, after a statement from the prisoner that he had not been in medical practice for six years, proceeded with his summing up. He reviewed the remaining evidence, dwelt severely upon the falsehood and the avarice of the prisoner, and remarked that the facts elicited had proved that no reliance could be placed on anything Dr. Smethurst said. The jury then retired, and after an absence of forty minutes returned into court, where the foreman delivered a verdict of guilty. The prisoner proceeded to address the court and spoke in a rambling strain for fifty minutes. He repeatedly called upon God to witness his innocence, declared that Dr. Julius had sacrificed his life, and generally attacked the parties concerned in the prosecution. He said that Isabella Banks knew that he was married, and it was agreed that their union should be ratified hereafter in the event of the death of his wife. The Lord Chief Baron, after repeated interruptions from the prisoner, proceeded to pass the sentence of death. He said it was one of the most horrible cases of murder he had ever heard of. The prisoner was unworthy of belief, and his assertions with regard to the witnesses were as false as many other of his statements, and they had been proved to be so by his own letters. It would be difficult for anyone to consider the evidence without coming to the same conclusion which the jury had pronounced in their verdict. The learned judge then passed the sentence of death upon the prisoner. The court was densely crowded, and thousands of persons were congregated outside. Reprieve. The day after his sentence, however, a movement was commenced to obtain his reprieve. Numerous letters were written to the newspapers, and memorials were sent to the Home Secretary. One of the memorials came from his aged wife, setting forth that she was now seventy-four years of age, and that they had lived together for thirty years, and that he had always been a kind and considerate husband, and one that she could not believe to be guilty of the crime of murder. The reprieve gathered momentum, although the newspapers were scathing. From the Armagh Guardian, the 2nd of September, 1859, Smethurst. Whether Dr. Smethurst is hanged or not, there can be no two opinions as to what his fate would be if every man were to receive their just deserts. He is the most atrocious villain as yet found out in this villainous world. That he murdered that miserable woman by slow and cruel torture half an inch a day, who can doubt it? The medical evidence may have obscured a plain case so as to render the conviction dubious in the eyes of the law, but in the eyes of the common sense and humanity he would surely die the death. The memorials had the desired effect. The case was reviewed. The review stated that though it was 
full of suspicion against Dr. Smethurst, yet there were points of doubt in it. Under the circumstances, the Home Secretary obtained the Queen's consent to a free pardon for an alleged murder, and he was set free for the murder of Isabella Banks. From the Weekly Chronicle, the 10th of September, 1859, Smethurst. When informed of Her Majesty's clemency, Dr. Smethurst did not betray so much emotion as might have been expected under the circumstances, but he shook hands with the Governor and, in an earnest manner, asserted his entire innocence to the crime for which he has, was condemned to die, and added what a dreadful thing it would have been to die an ignominious death for a crime that was never committed. Dr. Quain has addressed a letter to Sergeant Harry, detailing a case of pregnancy complicated with dysentery, which looked so like slow poisoning that he had an analysis made, but no poison was discovered. The Lancet published an, an important letter from Dr. Smethurst, which it received in June last, but withheld from publication at the time because it did not appear to be sanctioned by the prisoner's legal adviser. In this letter, Dr. Smethurst described the symptoms of Miss Banks's illness with a view to show that she died from natural causes and in affecting language asserts his innocence of the crime imputed to him. The Lancet also publishes a letter from Professor Taylor in which he repeats his evidence that antimony was found in one of the kidneys and in other parts of the body. Dr. Julius writes to the Times, and he was requested to attend the offices of Messrs. Smythes and Teasdale and Co., the solicitors for the prosecution of Smethurst, to answer certain questions. He believes suggested by the Home Secretary, and his answers were corroborative of the evidence he gave on the trial. He stated, I would say that our opinions as to the cause of Miss Banks's death have not been in the slightest degree shaken. Bigamy. With the failure of achieving the prosecution against Smethurst for the death of Isabella Banks, the prosecution immediately requested for trial against Smethurst for bigamy. In this, he was found guilty. He was sentenced to twelve months' imprisonment for bigamy. At the end of his sentence, he proved the will of Miss Banks and obtained possession of all her property she had bequeathed to him. He was free and he was wealthy. Case 3. Dr. Pritchard Dr. Pritchard, with many a mistress on the side, was nicknamed the poisoning philanderer by the press. Although he was only convicted of killing two, his wife and mother-in-law. It was suspected that he killed at least one more, a previous servant of his household. The Dr. Pritchard case within Scotland was a few years after England's Dr. Palmer case, another recognised serial killer. Both killers were referenced in Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes story, The Speckled Band stating that when a doctor goes bad, he is the first of criminals. Certainly within Scotland, the Dr. Pritchard case was as big 
as the Dr. Palmer case in England. About Edward William Pritchard. Edward Pritchard was born into a good family and had every privilege expected to the growing middle class of that time. There are no stories of difficult upbringings such as in the case of Marie Lafarge. By all accounts, his early years were ordinary. From the trial notes of Dr. Pritchard. Edward William Pritchard was the son of John White Pritchard, a captain in the Royal Navy, and was born at Southsea in Hampshire on the 6th of December, 1825. After going through the usual preliminary education, he was apprenticed in September 1840 to Messrs Edward John and Charles Henry Scott, surgeons of considerable practice in Portsmouth. During his apprenticeship, it is stated that he diligently studied the elementary branches of his profession and conducted himself with propriety. There is considerable uncertainty with regard to the next step in his career. One account states that on completing his apprenticeship, he proceeded to London and entered on his hospital studies at King's College in October 1843 but the officials of that institution denied that there was any foundation for the statement. A contemporary writer remarks, Whatever the extent of his medical education, and however it may have been acquired, it appears that the doctor's application to study was never remarkable, for all competent judges subsequently agreed in pronouncing him the shallowests of scientists so far as knowledge of his profession was concerned. One of the main themes of Pritchard is a habit of lying, self-inflating and finding ways to get away with things. He was a man who spent well above his income, told stories of his education and supposed achievements, and boasted of his success with women. Pritchard met and married Miss Mary Jane Taylor, in 1850, with the full approval of her parents. Initially, he did not have the means to support a wife, so she went back to her parents in Edinburgh whilst Pritchard stayed in the Royal Navy as a surgeon. Mary Jane's parents managed to secure him a position in Yorkshire, and he was appointed as medical officer in Filey. Descriptions of Pritchard from his position there described him as having left there with a very indifferent reputation. He was fluent, plausible, amorous, politely impudent, and singularly untruthful. One who knew him well at Filey described him as the prettiest liar he ever met with. Pritchard garnered a bad reputation there along with discredit and debt, and had to leave. He sold his practice in Yorkshire, did some travelling in Egypt, whilst Mary Jane once again stayed with her parents, and returned to set up a practice in Glasgow. Reports from his time there suggest that it was an indifferent practice, and as usual his expenses far outweighed his income. In social events, 
He was a known self-inflating liar, not to be trusted. It is stated to have been a matter of public knowledge that Dr. Pritchard took reckless advantage of his professional opportunities to make improper attempts upon his lady patients, both married and single. From here, the trail of events that eventually led to Pritchard to the gallows begins. From the Glasgow Herald, the 6th of May, 1863. Lamentable occurrence. Young woman burned to death. Yesterday morning, a melancholy accident occurred in the residence of Dr. E. W. Pritchard, situated at number 11, Barclay Terrace, Barclay Street. The house, which is situated on the north side of the street, consists of two flats and attics, the servants' sleeping apartment being on the top flat fronting the street. At about three o'clock, one of the constables stationed in the vicinity of the dwelling observed the glare of fire through the attic window, and immediately proceeded to the front door and rung the bell. The door was opened by Dr. Pritchard, who slept in a bedroom on the second floor, and who had been wakened a few minutes before the bell rang by his two sons, who slept in an adjoining apartment, calling out, Papa! Papa! The doctor rose, and on opening his room door, he was alarmed to find smoke in the lobby, and, on proceeding to the room in which his sons slept, he learnt that they had been wakened by smoke and the cracking of glass. It was quite apparent then that the house was on fire, and leaving his boys in the lobby leading from the street door, he rushed up to the attic flat, pushed open the door of this servant's sleeping apartment, and called out, Elizabeth, but received no answer. The apartment was so completely filled with smoke that he could not enter, and on proceeding downstairs for the purpose of raising the alarm, the bell rang, and he admitted the constable. The alarm was immediately conveyed to the Anderson Police Office and then to the Central Engine Station by telegraph, and the brigades were speedily in attendance and extinguished the flames. On entering the sleeping apartment on the top floor, a sad spectacle presented itself. The poor woman, whose name was Elizabeth McGeehan, was found in bed dead, her body being a charred mass. The bed was placed at the northwest corner of the room and the body lay at the front of the bed, the head towards the west. The body was lying on its back, the left arm being close by the side, and the right arm appeared to have been in a bent position, but the fire at this part had been so strong that the arm from the hand to the elbow was completely consumed. The head was a charred mass, and the flesh was burned off the breast, the ribs being visible. The limbs of the deceased were comparatively uninjured, in consequence of being protected by stockings and blankets but the toes, which had not been protected by the blankets, were charred. The fire had eventually broken out at the head of the bed, because at this part of the apartment the floor was burned through, and the joists forming the roof of the drawing-room 
were considerably charred. The roof of the house, with the exception of a portion at the back, was entirely destroyed. Dr. Pritchard, on returning home at about 11 o'clock on Monday evening, observed that the servant's apartment was lighted. He entered the house, and, contrary to his usual custom, he did not call on her to ascertain whether or not he had been wanted. After visiting the apartment in which his boys slept, for the purpose of ascertaining if they were comfortable in bed, he retired to rest at about twelve o'clock. It is said that the poor girl who has met such an untimely death was in the habit of reading in bed, and the supposition is that after she had fallen asleep, the gas jet, which was close to the head of the bed, had ignited the bed hangings, and that the deceased had been suffocated by smoke. The neighbour servant of the deceased happened to be out of town with her mistress, and possibly in her absence the girl, McGurn, had read longer than usual and fallen asleep without extinguishing the gas. The damage to the dwelling is, we understood, covered by insurance. There was no investigation at the time, although the death was considered odd. Why had Elizabeth not left her room? The burning of her skin would surely have awoken her. Instead, it looked as if she had been insensible to the heat and fire in the room. She had not left her bed, although she was young and able. It was only retrospectively, as investigations into Dr. Pritchard's history came forth, that the idea was entertained that Pritchard had most likely had an affair with the young girl Elizabeth, and for some reason he had decided to kill her. A known affair at that time would have destroyed his practice. There was also the lure of insurance money. Pritchard was always in debt. Professional Medical Witness Interestingly, some six months after this event, Pritchard was called in as the medical expert in the Dalmarnock Road murder, the murder of the blooded, bruised and straggled body of Elizabeth Kirkland went to trial. Speaking for the defence, Pritchard stated that in his medical opinion he did not think the compression of the throat from violent throttling was the cause of death. Rather, he testified that the death was probably due to apoplexy brought on by excessive drinking. The suspected murderer, known to regularly batter Elizabeth, was released as not proven. Financial Difficulties Letters from 1863 between Mary Jane and her mother show how Pritchard was borrowing heavily from Mary Jane's mother, Jane Taylor, who had, with difficulty, raised money he had requested in order to buy them a property. The mother, Jane Taylor, urges Mary Jane to take control over the family expenses. It was during the summer of 1863 that Pritchard seduced the new replacement maid, Mary MacLeod, whilst his wife was away for a short while to the coast. That intimacy continues when Mary Jane returns. 
With the influx of the loan of £2,000 from Mary Jane's mother, Jane Taylor, records show that Pritchard is still overdrawing his bank account. In the summer of 1864, Mary Jane discovers his relationship with Mary MacLeod by seeing them together. We do not have any records of what Mary Jane's reaction was to seeing her husband intimate with the maid, but the maid, Mary MacLeod, is not fired. Indeed, the maid Mary has an assisted miscarriage with the help of Pritchard and continues on in her position. A few months later, in October 1864, Mary Jane's health begins to decline. From the trial of Dr. Pritchard. It was in the month of October 1864 that the condition of Mrs. Pritchard's health first attracted the notice of other members of the family. At this time, the household consisted of herself, Dr. Pritchard, four of their five children, the cook, Catherine Latimer, and Mary MacLeod, who acted as both nurse and housemaid. Mrs. Pritchard was confined to bed for some time, suffering from sickness and vomiting, which she attributed to a chill, and when somewhat recovered she went about the 26th of November on a visit to her relatives in Edinburgh. There she remained until the 22nd of December, when she came home to Glasgow for Christmas. During this visit she became much better in health, and continued well until a fortnight after her return, when the distressing symptoms from which she had previously suffered reappeared with greater intensity. The sickness became more persistent, occurring usually after meals, particularly liquid food. From this time onward, she was seldom able to go downstairs to take her meals with the family, and her food was either taken or sent to her own room by her husband. During the month of November, Dr. Pritchard was proven to have bought tartarized antimony and tincture of aconite in quantities of one ounce of each, and on the 8th of December he purchased an ounce of Fleming's tincture of aconite, which is six times stronger than the ordinary tincture. For our listeners, antimony is an old poison that was used during Roman times. Medically, it was used during Victorian times as a purgative to help induce vomiting. Long-term use of antimony causes diarrhoea, stomach pain, vomiting and stomach ulcers. Mary Jane's illness persisted through the Christmas holidays and into the new year. From the trial of Dr. Pritchard, Mrs. Pritchard's first serious attack of illness was on the 1st of February 1865, when, in addition to violent sickness, she was seized with cramp accompanied by severe pain, which left her in a very exhausted state. After this attack, Dr. Pritchard wrote to Dr. James Moffat Cowan, a retired medical man resident in Edinburgh and a second cousin of his wife's, requesting him to come through and see her. 
Dr. Cowan accordingly visited Mrs. Pritchard on the 7th and stayed all night. He found her better than he had been led to expect and apparently did not consider her case serious. Dr. Pritchard described her illness as arising from irritation of the stomach and Dr. Cowan prescribed a mustard poultice and small quantities of champagne and ice. On the day of Dr. Cowan's visit, Dr. Pritchard bought his second ounce of tartrazide antimony and a further ounce of tincture of aconite. Dr. Cowan returned to Edinburgh next day, the 8th, and in the course of that night, Mrs. Pritchard was again attacked with severe spasms, and at her own request, Dr. Gardiner was called in. Dr. Gardiner was puzzled by the case, and was of the opinion, from the state of excitement in which he found the patient, that she was intoxicated. Dr. Gardner was, however, very far from satisfied with the treatment which the patient was receiving, and accordingly, on the ninth, after his second visit to Mrs. Pritchard, he wrote to her brother, Dr. Michael Taylor of Penrith, expressing his dissatisfaction and strongly recommending Mrs. Pritchard's removal to her brother's house. On Dr. Taylor's suggesting that his sister should come to him for a time, Dr. Pritchard expressed his perfect willingness that she should do so, but considered she was not then in a fit state to travel. On Dr. Cowan's return to Edinburgh, he saw Mrs. Taylor, Mary Jane's mother, and recommended her to go to Glasgow to nurse her daughter, whom, with only two servants in a large household, required, he thought, more attention than she was receiving. Mrs. Taylor, Mary Jane's mother, accordingly proceeded to Glasgow on Friday the 10th of February and took up her abode in that fatal house, which she was destined never to leave again alive. The day before she came, her son-in-law, Dr. Pritchard, bought an ounce of tincture of aconite his fourth purchase of a similar quantity of that poison within less than three months. The Arrival of Jane Taylor Mary Jane's mother arrived to take care of her daughter, Mary Jane. Within a week of her arrival, Mrs. Taylor, upon eating some tapioca that had been made, became violently ill. From the Trial of Dr. Pritchard whether Mrs. Pritchard partook of it or not does not appear, but Mrs. Taylor did, and immediately became sick and vomited, remarking, poor lady, with unconscious significance, that she thought she must have got the same complaint as her daughter. It was not proved that Dr. Pritchard was in the house when this incident occurred, but in the remainder of the packet of tapioca which was found in the kitchen after his apprehension, the presence of antimony was unequivocally detected. A few days later, Pritchard purchased another ounce of Fleming's tincture of aconite, 
Now, Mrs. Taylor, though a strong and healthy old lady for her seventy years, had unfortunately contracted the habit of taking a preparation of opium, known as Batley's Sedative Solution. She commenced to use this medicine as a remedy for the neuralgic headaches which she suffered, and the practice had so grown upon her as to enable her to take with impunity considerable quantities of that drug. Shortly after her arrival in Glasgow, she sent the girl MacLeod to have filled for her by the local chemist a bottle which apparently she carried about with her for that purpose. The old lady spent the day in the sick room. She had been in attendance upon her daughter day and night since she came, and went down to tea with Dr. Pritchard and the family in the dining-room at seven o'clock, after which she wrote some letters in the consulting-room and sent Mary MacLeod out to get sausages for her supper. She then went upstairs to her daughter's bedroom, which she had shared since her arrival, Dr. Pritchard's occupying the spare bedroom. A few minutes later the bell rang violently, and the servants on going up found Mrs. Taylor sitting in a chair, very ill and trying to be sick. Hot water was brought to effect this, but to no purpose. She quickly became unconscious and sat with her head hanging down upon her breast. Dr. Pritchard was summoned, and having examined her, he told the boarder, Connell, to go for Dr. Patterson, as Mrs. Taylor had been seized with apoplexy and was seriously ill. Accordingly, shortly after ten o'clock, Dr. Patterson appeared in that chamber of death. Mrs. Taylor, who had been lifted onto her daughter's bed, was still alive, but he at once expressed his opinion that she was dying under the influence of some powerful narcotic. Dr. Pritchard then told him that she was in the habit of taking Batley's solution, that she had recently purchased a half-pound bottle of that medicine, and that it was highly probable she had taken a good swig at it. Dr. Patterson, in his evidence, gives a striking picture of the occupants of that fatal room. Mrs. Taylor was dying, fully dressed upon her daughter's bed, and sitting up beyond her. He observed Mrs. Pritchard, whom he then saw for the first time, in a state of pitiful agitation and distress, and the conviction forced itself upon his mind that she was under the depressing influence of antimony. He did not speak to her, however, on questioning her husband as to her condition, but left the house. Shortly before one o'clock, Dr. Patterson was again sent for, but refused to go, as he considered Mrs. Taylor's case hopeless. At one o'clock in the morning of Saturday the 20th February, a fortnight after her arrival in Glasgow, Mrs. Taylor died. In trial, Dr. Patterson stated his belief that Mary Jane was being slowly poisoned to death, but he apparently said nothing to Mary Jane, the victim, although he had an opportunity to do so. Pritchard asked him to sign the certificate of death, 
Dr. Patterson declined to do so. From the trial of Dr. Pritchard. On Wednesday, the 1st of March, Dr. Pritchard met Dr. Patterson accidentally in the street and asked him to call and see Mrs. Pritchard next day as he was going to Edinburgh to bury his mother-in-law. Mr. Patterson did so, and from his observation of Mrs. Pritchard on that occasion, his previous opinion was confirmed. He made no communication, however, to the unhappy lady as to his belief that her death was being slowly compassed by poison. On the 3rd, Mr. Michael Taylor, the husband of Mrs. Taylor, called on Dr. Patterson and said that Dr. Pritchard had sent him for the certificate of death. This Dr. Patterson declined to give, without stating any reason beyond that to do so would be contrary to professional etiquette. The next day, Dr. Patterson wrote to the registrar, who had sent him a schedule to fill up, refusing to grant the certificate, and characterising the death of Mrs. Taylor as sudden, unexpected, and to him mysterious. The death was accordingly certified by Dr. Pritchard himself as follows. Primary cause, paralysis. Duration, 12 hours. Secondary cause, apoplexy. Duration, one hour. Mary Jane's illness continued on unabated, and she was now completely isolated with her husband, who was slowly killing her day by day. To visitors, Mary Jane complained of constant retching, even in her sleep. On the 13th of March, Pritchard made his last purchase of Fleming's tincture of aconite. In the evening, some cheese was sent up for Mary Jane to have. We can only guess that Mary Jane suspected what was happening to her. She asked the maid who had brought it up to taste it, and the maid reportedly said a burning sensation was in her throat. More stories were revealed of Pritchard being seen lovingly giving Mary Jane things to swallow and her later becoming violently ill. Mary Jane died in great agony on the 18th of March, only a few weeks after having watched the death of her mother happen in front of her whilst lying in her sickbed. Great demonstration of deep sorrow and disbelief were exhibited by Pritchard, with some papers later referring to him as the human crocodile, a backhanded reference to crocodile tears. It would later come out in trial that on the same day of Mary Jane's death, he wrote letters to his bank explaining that he knew he was overdrawn, but had not been able to deal with it as he had two deaths in the family. Two days after her death, Pritchard himself certified cause of death of his wife as gastric fever with the duration of two months. He then made the trip with his wife's body to her family burial plot in Edinburgh. There, at Dr. Pritchard's request, the coffin was opened in the presence of the relatives and exhibited, we are told, a great deal of feeling. The murderer kissed his dead victim on the lips 
a scene truly unparalleled in human history. The Unsuspected Letter Whilst Pritchard was burying his wife with dramatics displayed of affection, the police had received an anonymous letter pointing to Pritchard as having poisoned his wife. To this day, no one has claimed ownership of having sent the letter. It remains anonymous. Following on the tip, the police searched Pritchard's house where they found a mistakable remnants of antimony. An initial analysis of Mary Jane's body discovered no poison nor anything to point to death by natural causes. A more stringent chemical analysis was applied a few weeks later and the unmistakable presence of antimony was discovered. From this evidence, Mrs. Taylor, Mary Jane's mother's body, was exhumed. It also showed irrefutable traces of antimony. Dr. Pritchard was remanded for trial. From the Glasgow Morning Journal, 21st of March, 1865, the arrest of a Glasgow medical gentleman. At the Central Police Court this morning, Bailey Rayburn presiding, Dr. Edward W. Pritchard, residing at 131 Socky Hall Street, was, although not brought into the court, remitted to have the sheriff pending an investigation into the death of his wife, Mary Jane Taylor. Mrs. Pritchard died on Saturday and her body was taken for interment by her husband to Edinburgh, to which city we believe the deceased lady belonged. Whilst he was absent on this solemn duty, the police authorities, on what ground we, we do not know, but on some grave suspicion there can be no doubt, adopted measures for his apprehension. Superintendent McCall was waiting for the arrival of the last train from Edinburgh, and on the passengers coming out upon the platform, Dr. Pritchard, who was in the train, was conducted by that officer to the central police office, where he was detained all night. This morning, Dr. Pritchard was, as already indicated, remitted to the sheriff. We should state that the late Mrs. Pritchard, whose age was 39 years old, had been ill for some time, and that she was visited by her mother, a lady of about 70 years of age, and that Mrs. Taylor died suddenly on the 25th of February. Dr. Pritchard, we believe, states that the cause of death of his mother-in-law was apoplexy and that of his wife, gastric fever. It will be known today whether these avertments are confirmed. A post-mortem examination of the body of Mrs. Pritchard being now made in Edinburgh by, we believe, doctors McLagan and Littlejohn. Meanwhile, the police in Glasgow are making further investigations. With Dr. Pritchard being a professional man, suspicion turned immediately to the maid, Mary MacLeod. From the Glasgow Herald, Thursday the 23rd of March, 1865. The case of Dr. Pritchard, the apprehension of the housemaid. The investigation of this unhappy case 
continues to occupy the attention of the authorities. Yesterday afternoon, Dr. Pritchard, who had up to that time remained in the central police station, was conveyed in a cab to the county buildings, where he was examined before Sheriff Sir Archibald Allison with reference to the sudden death of his wife. The examination lasted about an hour and a half, the prisoner making a declaration which was committed to writing in the usual way. In this statement, we have reason to believe the doctor distinctly repelled all imputations with reference to the matter which has led to his apprehension. Shortly after the examination was closed, the prisoner was removed to the North Prison, where he will be detained pending the further investigations of the case. As he passed out of the county buildings, he nodded to an acquaintance who was standing in the corridor and made a remark to the effect that the affair would be cleared up in a few days. From an early hour yesterday morning, Mr. Superintendent McCall was anxiously engaged in prosecuting inquiries in Dr. Pritchard's house, and as the result of his research, a new, and it may be a most important element, was in the course of the afternoon imported into the case. We refer to the apprehension of a girl about 18 years of age named Mary MacLeod, who has been in the doctor's service for some two years in the capacity of housemaid, and who filled that situation in the house up to the time when Mr. McCall considered it his duty to take her into custody. What part this girl is to play in the succeeding acts of this painful drama, whether she is to appear as a principal or as a witness, we do not pretend to say. But from what we have heard, it would appear that there has been an illicit connection between her and the prisoner in times past. And it is said that she has been heard to boast that if Mrs. Pritchard were to die, it was not unlikely that she might occupy her place. The papers speculated daily about the Pritchard case, with Mary MacLeod being condemned in the papers for several days as being the only possible real suspect in the case, her motive being one of wishing to be married to Pritchard and poisoning others to get them out of the way. In the meantime, Pritchard was in a holding cell while the chemical analyses were carried out, and although antimony and morphine were found in the house, this was explained by Pritchard as being expected as he was a medical doctor. Finally, on the 31st of May, upon the conclusive evidence of the bodies, extensive interrogations of the maid, Mary MacLeod, and the other servants in the house and friends and family the following indictment was served to Dr. Pritchard. Edward William Pritchard, take notice that you will have to appear before the High Court of Judiciary within the Criminal Courthouse of Edinburgh to answer to the criminal libel against you which this notice is attached on the 3rd day of July, 1865, 
at half past nine of the clock for noon. The trial was a sensation and completely eclipsed any other news within the Scottish press. Two of the major components of the trial of Dr. Pritchard were why, if Dr. Patterson suspected poisoning taking place, did he not report it? The second point was the inference by Dr. Pritchard that Mary MacLeod had committed the poisonings in order to clear the way for Dr. Pritchard to marry her. According to the compiled trial of Dr. Pritchard, the case for the prosecution, splendidly handled by the Solicitor General, was built up with such skill and closeness as to leave practically no loophole for doubt. Not a superfluous witness was examined and hardly a superfluous question put to any of those in the box. The evidence adduced for the crime incontestably established that the death of both ladies was due to poison. In the case of Mrs. Pritchard, it was proven beyond doubt that she died of chronic antimony poisoning, her body being impregnated with that drug. Although the evidence in Mrs. Taylor's case, if quite as complete, was not so cumulative and irresistible. The case being one of circumstantial evidence only, no direct act of administration could be proved against the prisoner, but it was amply demonstrated that he alone had the means and the opportunity and the skill requisite for carrying through the double crime, and his gratuitous falsehoods regarding the illness and deaths of his victims, both to the registrar and others at the time and afterwards in his declarations disposed of the question of his guilt. At the conclusion of the five-day trial, Pritchard was found unequivocally guilty. From the Greenock Advertiser and Clyde Commercial Journal, 22nd of July, 1865, the trial of Dr. Pritchard has ended in his conviction as a double murderer, the guilty author of the death of his wife and her aged mother, Mrs. Taylor. This was one of the foulest deeds of crime that has marked the present century. Mrs. Pritchard did not fall a victim to her husband's vengeance on account of crimes manifest or suspected, but from a motive still lower and less human. And the venerable parent could only have been sacrificed to stop her mouth in silence as to what she suspected of the perfidy and truculence of the man towards her helpless, passive daughter, and perhaps to prevent her changing the destination of her private fortune. Although it does not appear to be proved that simple pecuniary advantage as respects his affinity relatives was the cause of this vile atrocity, yet in his depraved imagination Dr. Pritchard may have seen an opening to wealth beyond the grave of a murdered wife. But the man was graceless and immoral, a libertine within the even the sanctuary of domestic life. This, in his case, prepared the way 
for the bitter death inflicted on his wife by poison as out of his diabolic machinations arose the death of the parent of the victim. It was expedient that the aged lady should die, as the dead tell no tales, even where the treacherous death of a most unfortunate child is concerned. Pritchard likely judged himself secure in his strategy. He killed by inches, and the effect of the poisons in the body of the woman coincided largely rather assimilated itself with what happens in cases of disease attributable wholly to natural causes. He would have expected to escape suspicion, and that a certificate of the usual kind would have consigned the name of his murdered wife to the bills of mortality without special comment. Great was the miscalculation of the guilty man. The very physician in attendance refused to authenticate the demise as an ordinary casualty. The authorities, too, were warned by letter to institute an inquest after innocent blood, and on the case proceeded, till, after a trial extended over days of vigorous investigation, the doom of a murderer was pronounced on the prisoner. All that is left to him now is to seek mercy from above, in the way of penitence and humiliation, as a sinner to whom attaches blood-guiltiness and more of criminality besides. The Confession A repeated, concerted effort was made by clergymen to Pritchard to convince him to confess. In his first confession, Pritchard confirmed his intimacy with Mary MacLeod, her pregnancy and her subsequent assisted miscarriage. As for the deaths, he only claimed the death of his wife, but at her own request for an assisted death and whilst he was drunk. The clergyman did not believe him. After a visit from his brother, sister and eldest daughter, he made a new second confession. I, Edward William Pritchard, in the full possession of all my senses, and understanding the awful position in which I am placed, do make free and open confession that the sentence pronounced upon me is just, that I am guilty of the death of my mother-in-law, Mrs. Taylor, and of my wife, Mary Jane Pritchard, that I can assign no motive for the conduct which actuated me beyond the species of terrible madness and the use of ardent spirits. I hereby freely and fully state that the confession made to the Reverend R. S. Oldham on the eleventh day of this month was not true, and I confess that I alone, not Mary MacLeod, poisoned my wife in the way brought forward out on the evidence at my trial. Mrs. Taylor's death was caused accordingly to the wording of the indictment. I further state to be true, and the main facts brought out at my trial I hereby fully acknowledge and now plead wholly 
and solely guilty thereto, and may God have mercy upon my soul. No mention was made of the burnt-to-death servant girl, Elizabeth McGurn, and Pritchard made little reference to her despite being questioned. It was generally assumed that he had killed her and created the fire to cover the murder as well as to receive the insurance money. The Execution It is estimated that upwards of 100,000 spectators attended to watch Pritchard's swing. 750 additional police were brought in as reinforcements for crowd control. Halcroft, known for his short drops and therefore long and painful deaths, was to be the executioner. From the Dundee People's Journal, 29th of July, 1865. The execution of Dr. Pritchard. About seven minutes past eight o'clock, Pritchard came out at the central door under the massive portico. He walked with a firm step and as erect as a soldier on parade. His face was ashly pale and his eyes were fixed towards heaven. Two assistants of Calcraft were placed one to each side of the convict. He did not require any aid from them but ascended the steps of the scaffold firmly, his face still turned upwards. At the step next the drop he stumbled and leant forward a little, but quickly regained his balance. He stood below the noose, facing the immense multitude, of whose presence, however, he seemed to be quite unconscious. The two assistants then retired, and Calcraft adjusted the rope around Pritchard's neck with great coolness and self-possession, almost leisurely pulling out the long beard in order to allow the rope to be firmly fixed around the criminal's neck. The moment was one of terrible suspense. When the beard was adjusted to his satisfaction, Calcraft went behind and rather roughly pulled the long streaming hair and allowed it to lie above the rope. The sight of Pritchard's face covered with the ghastly white cap was most painful. He was dressed in a suit of black, the same suit worn by him at the funeral of his wife. One could not but be struck with the proportions of his figure and the scrupulous neatness with which the suit was made, displaying these proportions to the greatest possible advantage. His left hand was gloved and he held the other glove loosely in his right. After shaking hands with the executioner, the bolt was drawn. The block went from beneath the feet of the prisoner, and he was left dangling, having fallen about three feet. Simultaneously with the falling of the drop, a piercing shriek rose from the immense multitude. But there was no booing, hissing, or any other noise. He seemed to die very hard. But the fall was so great that he must have been quite insensible to feeling. Nine distinct throws were visible, and the body then swung slowly round, the face looking towards the door from which he had just emerged. 
and facing the officials and others who were congregated below the porch. Just as the face turned directly round, the right hand relaxed a little, and the black glove which it had held fell down into the coffin which lay directly beneath. The throes of the body ceased, and all was over. Dr. Pritchard's execution would be the last public execution in Scotland. Case 4. Dr. Buck Ruxton. The doctor who cut up his victims into seventy pieces with surgical skills. Known in the press as the savage surgeon, he killed his common-law wife Elizabeth Kerr swiftly, followed on by the murder of the family nursemaid, mutilating both bodies to ensure that every mole, scar or birthmark was cut away to inhibit identification. These gruesome murders created a bloodbath in his house that soaked carpets, flooring and covered the walls in blood splatter. This case was also significant in its use of forensic techniques, quite modern in its day. Dr. Buck Ruxton, 1936 Red stains on the carpet, red stains on the knife. Oh, Dr. Buck Ruxton, you cut up your wife. The nursemaid, she saw you, and threatened to tell. So, Dr. Buck Ruxton, you killed her as well. Such was the rhyme that went around the streets in 1936 Lancaster, detailing the crimes of Dr. Buck Ruxton. So, who was Dr. Buck Ruxton? Bukchia, Chompa, Rostomji, Ratanji Hakim was born to a wealthy family in Bombay in 1922. With support from his family, Ruxton, as he would be renamed, attended the University of Bombay, where he qualified as a doctor. He continued his studies qualifying as a surgeon shortly thereafter. In 1925, he was married in an arranged marriage which didn't last very long. In 1926, he arrived in Edinburgh to work as a doctor. He changed his name to Buck Ruxton and by all accounts was a man of temperate habits who worked hard and was keen to fit into British society. It was at this time that he met Isabella Kerr and began dating her. Isabella Kerr, an attractive 26-year-old woman, was at the time of meeting Buck, disastrously married to a Dutchman. The marriage had only lasted a few weeks after which Isabella had moved away and resumed using her maiden name of Kerr. She was still legally married to her Dutch husband, although she had very little to do with him for some time. Buck relocated to London in 1928, with Isabella following him. Here he found work as a fill-in doctor at a practice for when doctors went on holiday. 
he also found work as an assistant to another doctor's practice. Here, Isabella gave birth to their first child, a daughter named Elizabeth. In 1930, the family moved to Lancaster, where he set up his own practice out of his home. Two more children followed a daughter and a son. Isabella remained his common-law wife. The expanded family required the need for additional in-house help, and Mary Jane Rogerson was brought in to help with the children as well as help with household chores. Professionally, Dr Ruxton seemed to be doing well. He was recognised as a hard-working and sympathetic doctor who was known to have waived his fee more than once with patients who possibly could not afford health services. Dr Ruxton's, Dr. Ruxton's personal life seems to have been far more explosive and dramatic. Although he and Isabella never officially wed, they presented themselves as a married couple. Isabella took on the surname Ruxton when introducing herself, and as far as the community were concerned, Dr Ruxton and Isabella were a married couple with three children. Loud arguments were known to take place between the two. The crux of the arguments tended towards Ruxton's jealousy, unfounded of Isabella's being unfaithful to him, and accusations regularly flew. Isabella, wearying of the arguments, would regularly pack up her things as well as those of her children and move back to Scotland. Panicked and in tears, Dr Ruxton would ring her, begging her to return. She would eventually do this, and the cycle would start again. Police records document accusations by Isabella of physical abuse. On more than one occasion, both parties were brought to the police station, where Ruxton is recorded as rambling in speech with tears. Isabella made several complaints, stating that Ruxton was beating her. Ruxton would counter that she was having affairs. There would be no resolution, and Isabella would go back to him. Isabella was generally considered as attractive. She was vivacious and enjoyed socialising and going to events. At a town hall function, she spent the whole of the evening dancing with different men as Ruxton watched. The dramatic ups and downs continued. In 1932, Isabella was said to have made a suicide attempt by attempting to asphyxiate herself. The attempt ended with a miscarriage. After the birth of the third child, the already tempestuous relationship between the two grew even more so with constant allegations of infidelity and mistrust. The Edmondsons the Edmondsons were a well-known family within the Lancaster community of the time. Robert Edmondson, considerably younger than Dr Ruxton and Isabella, were considered to have a good friendship. Although accusations flew as to their relationship being illicit, no proof of the accusation was ever substantiated. However, Ruxton was convinced 
the affair between the Edmonston and Isabella were real, and that it had been going on for some time. Setting the scene. In September 1935, Isabella, in company with the Edmondson family, travelled to Edinburgh. Isabella was going to visit one of her sisters. Ruxton was unable to go with Isabella due to the demands of his practice. However, inside Ruxton seethed with the conviction that Isabella was having an affair with Edmondson and was using the pretext of a trip to visit her sister as means to spend more time with Edmondson without the watchful eye of Ruxton. The Crime Prior to the day of the crime, Ruxton had taken the children to a family friend requesting that they care for the children for two days. His explanation was that Isabella and Mary Jane were travelling to Edinburgh. On the 14th of September, Isabella went to see the Blackpool Illuminations and also to visit two of her sisters. Upon her return from the event, Ruxton jumped on Isabella and strangled her with his own hands. The unfortunate maid was strangled next as a witness to the crime. From his pre-planning and explanations to friends that Mary Jane was away with his wife, it would seem that he had planned Mary Jane's death in advance. The bathroom which became the murder scene was an absolute bloodbath. Because of the large amounts of blood, it is supposed that Ruxton repeatedly beat and stabbed one or both of the bodies prior to death. Blood was found throughout the room, the stairs and the carpet. Next, using his training in surgery, Ruxton mutilated the corpses. He spent considerable time attempting to remove any identifying marks such as moles or scars. He then dismembered the bodies into 70 different body parts. The body parts were wrapped in old copies of the Sunday Chronicle, the Sunday Graphic and the Daily Herald in separate parcels. He then loaded the parcels of wrapped body parts into his car and drove some 100 miles away to the remote Moffat Ravine located on the border of Scotland where he dumped the body parts in the River Lynn. The Cover-Up The following day Ruxton visited one of his neighbours and asked her and her husband to go to his house which was also used as his practice to help him prepare for planned decorations. The house was in considerable disarray with carpeting having been torn up and rolled away, hay scattered in places on floor and some burnt material in the garden. The scene the couple were met with would come back to haunt Ruxton in court testimony. Some of Ruxton's errors. Although Ruxton took the time to hide his crime, he had made a number of errors. The Sunday Graphic was a limited supply souvenir edition that had only been sold in Lancaster and Morecambe, thereby reducing the potential murder scene to one of the two locations. He had knocked down a passing bicyclist. His license plate had been noted by the police. The clothes that were included 
with the body parts were identified by family and friends. Neighbours and his cleaner were aware of the utter disarray of the house after the bloodbath murder. Pre-planning was strongly indicated with the packing off of children to friends and with the lie to Mary Jane's parents of her whereabouts. Bug Forensics Flies can smell death up to ten miles away. A body that has been left in the elements can be difficult for a pathologist to accurately timeline the longer the body is open to the elements, or if it's burned. Forensic entomology can be much more accurate and give the death timeline of a body usually within a day. Flies go through four stages. The egg, which will normally hatch within 24 hours. The larvae, which will feed on the corpse for five days. Then a few days to pupate into a chrysalis, which is another seven days. Then they become an adult fly. The maggot stage itself is further divided into three separate phases, giving even more precision in identifying the timeline of the corpse. Types of blowfly can also indicate where a body was originally killed, as there are variations of this type between rural countryside and cities. In the Ruxton Jigsaw murder case, it was all about the maggots in determining the time of death. The Discovery Susan Johnson was leaning over the stone bridge near Muffet when she noticed a package lodged next to a rock. A rotting arm was protruding from the package. Police were called, in whom began to search throughout the stream and recovered four additional packages of body parts, also containing two severed heads. The rotting body parts had been wrapped in various bits of clothing, bedding and newspapers. The remains were taken to forensics. From the Western Morning News, Monday the 14th of October 1935, the first discovery of dismembered remains in the Moffat Ravine was made on September the 29th by two women taking an evening stroll along a lonely stretch of the Edinburgh to Carlisle Road. The Mutilations Forensics established that the body parts belonged to two females. It also quickly became clear that whoever had mutilated the corpses had good anatomical skill. The fingerprints had been removed on both bodies. The eyes, ears, skin, lips, as well as some of the teeth had been sliced away, making identification difficult. Parts of the bodies had also been cut away. The thigh of one of the victims had been cut away, as had the flesh of one leg of another victim. Forensics established that one woman was between 34 and 45 years of age, whilst the other victim was between 18 and 25. From studying of the maggots, the forensics indicated that the bodies had been disposed of shortly after the 17th of September. Newspapers, in their rush to get information out on this sensational story, 
reported some incorrect information. From the Lincolnshire Echo, the 1st of October, 1935, Moffat Ravine Mystery. Skillful dissection of victims' bodies, blood drained, skin removed. The bodies of the man and the woman found in the Moffat Ravine were skillfully dissected by the murderer to prevent identification. This was apparent when they were closely examined. All the post-mortem revealed was that the bodies were those of a woman in her early thirties and a man between forty-five and fifty. The police believe that more than one person was associated with the crime and that the bodies were dissected by an expert. The veins were drained of blood after death and the skin of the faces was carefully removed to take away any chance of easy identification. Even the fingers were filed or rubbed to dispose of fingerprints. Bodies not complete. No blood appeared on the sheets, sacking and newspapers used to wrap up the remains. This, and the shrunken nature of the remains, points to the fact that the blood was drained. Dumfrieshire police have asked the cooperation of all Scottish constabulary to provide them with details of missing persons, and they pin their chief hopes of a clue to information from other districts. The complete remains of the victims have not been recovered, and intensive search is being carried on in the undergrowth of the ravine. Solving the Crime With the limited souvenir edition of the Sunday Graphic, the police attention turned to Lancaster. With this in mind, Lancaster Police started focusing on local missing person cases reported between the September 15th and September 19th, with women fitting the age description determined by the medical forensic team. On the 24th, Ruxton, a repeat visitor to the local police station, with the numerous fights and accusations with Isabella, once again visited the police, but this time to inform them that Isabella had left him. Ruxton had also visited the parents of Mary Jane and informed her parents that she was pregnant and had left with Isabella to go to Scotland for an abortion. From here, the investigation leading to Ruxton and the death of Isabella and Mary Jane quickly fell into place. Police contacted Mary Jane's parents with items of clothing that had been packed with the body parts the parents immediately recognised one of the items as belonging to Mary Jane, with the specific mending that she had done under the armpit. Other clothing that had been included was positively identified by friends. The cleaner gave evidence of the state of the house when she arrived the following day. She spoke of the yellowish discoloration of the bathtub, quite similar to the colouring that would be left after iodine for cleaning. The hay on parts of the flooring, the rolled-up carpets and the burnt fabric in the garden all painted a rather damning picture of the murder house. The Arrest Given the positive identification of the blouse by her parents, 
Ruxton was initially charged with the murder of the nursemaid Mary Jane Rogerson. From the Western Morning News, the 14th of October 1935, Doctor Charged with Murder. Mystery of the Second Body. Police declare definite identification point. Sensation followed sensation in connection with the Moffat Ravine mystery today. Dr. Buck Ruxton of Dalton Square, Lancaster, was charged with the murder of Mary Jane Rogerson, the 20-year-old nursemaid who had been employed at his house, and the police declared that a definite point of identification had been found linking the body of the young female discovered in the ravine with Miss Rogerson. At five o'clock this morning, Dr. Buck Ruxton was charged with the murder of this girl and detained. Inquiries are being continued in regard to the fact that Mrs. Ruxton being missing and the identification of body number two at Moffat. The chief constable added that he is almost sure that body number two is that of a female. He continued, I'm not in a, a position to divulge yet what steps are being taken to establish the identity, but pathologists are still working the case. Dr. Dr. Ruxton was arrested at the police station and will probably appear at Lancaster Police Court tomorrow on the charge of murder. From here, there were several remands of Ruxton which were granted by the court as police spent their time gathering evidence and waiting for the results of forensics. From the Northern Whig, the 16th of October 1935, Dr. Buck Ruxton, taken to Walton Jail from Lancaster. Dr. Buck Ruxton, who was remanded at Lancaster on Monday with the murder of Mary Jane Rogerson, was taken from Lancaster Police Station last night to Walton Jail in Liverpool. Digging by police officers took place early yesterday in the backyard of the house occupied by Dr. Ruxton. Storm lanterns were placed in the yard, which is surrounded by a high wall, and, in the presence of police officers, flagstones were removed and the earth dug up. Up to last night, there was no news of Mrs. Ruxton, who has been missing for some time. The Chief Constable of Lancaster stated last night that the police were anxious to hear from anyone who had seen a stone-coloured Austin 12 four-seater saloon car travelling on the road between Lancaster Grange and Kendall on September the 17th. Next, the forensics team came up with what was at the time groundbreaking methodology. One of the skulls was superimposed onto a picture of Isabella. The two perfectly matched. Ruxton was charged with the murder of his common-law wife, Isabella. From a Scotsman, the 29th of September 1936, trial to open on Monday at Manchester Assize Court. An official notice that the trial for murders of Dr. Buck Ruxton will open on Monday was posted at the Manchester Assize Court yesterday.
Mr. Justice Singleton will hear the case in which over 100 witnesses are expected to give evidence. Dr. Buck Ruxton was committed from Lancaster Police Court on a charge of murdering his wife, Isabella Ruxton, and Mary Jane Rogerson, nursemaid, to their children. It was alleged that dismembered remains of two bodies found in a ravine at Moffat were those of the two women. The Trial The trial outline of the evidence was irrefutable. Ruxton often broke down into hysterical weeping and failing to provide clear answers to direct questions to him. He pleaded innocence, but it was difficult to contrive any kind of cohesive defence against such a hefty tome of evidence. The jury came to their decision within an hour. Ruxton was guilty and was to be hanged. Appeal Attempt The standard appeal attempt was made, but dismissed. Ruxton would hang. From the Daily News, London, 28th of April, 1936. Ruxton's appeal dismissed. Crown counsel not called. Ravine murderer hears his fate unmoved. The appeal of Dr. Buck Ruxton against sentence of death for the Moffat Ravine crime was dismissed in the Court of Criminal Appeal yesterday by the Lord Chief Justice Lord Hewitt and Justices Dupark and Goddard. Ruxton was convicted at Manchester Assizes after an eleven-day trial for the murder of his wife, Mrs. Elubella Ruxton. Without betraying any sign of emotion, Ruxton heard his fate sealed. For nearly three hours he sat in the dock listening intently as his leading counsel put forward point after point. While the Lord Chief Justice was speaking, he stood between his warders with shoulders haunched, his hands folded in front of him, his dark eyes resting on the judge. Only when Lord Hewitt indicated in terms so plain that no one could fail to mark their import did Ruxton let his glance stray round the crowded court. A look of despair and hopeless resignation spread over his features. The evidence left no doubt. Lord Hewitt affirmed what Mr Justice Singleton had said at the trial. Ruxton had been convicted on evidence which could leave no doubt upon the mind of anyone. As the last words of Lord Hewitt's judgment were uttered, Ruxton stood a dazed figure, a man who seemingly failed to understand his plight and doom. The attendant warders gently turned him round and quickly escorted him from the court to his cell. The main ground of appeal was that the verdict was against the weight of evidence and that there had been misdirection by the judge upon the evidence. Counsel spoke of the amount of surmise and speculation in the case, and his speech was a lengthy one. A few seconds after he had finished, Ruxton was listening to the quiet voice of the Lord Chief Justice and heard the cold, analytical judgment that meant death to him.
Confession. Ruxton continued to plead innocence up until the day of his execution. Secretly, Ruxton had confessed his crime and sent it to the papers who published it after his death. His confession read, I killed Mrs. Ruxton in a fit of temper because I thought she had been with a man. I was mad at the time. Mary Jane Rogerson was present at the time. I had to kill her. Dr. Buck Ruxton was executed on the 12th of May, 1936. The case itself was a huge leap for the use of forensic technologies in capturing criminals in the UK. That concludes today's history compilation episode, Doctors of Death. As a reminder, we upload these history compilations on the last Sunday of every month. We very much hope you enjoyed the show. If you did enjoy the show, we will be grateful if you could like or subscribe to our little channel. We upload five days a week. Mondays are murderous as we delve into the dark side of Regency and Victorian crime. Wednesdays are wicked where we pull together stories with a similar theme, such as Doctors of Death. Fridays are frightful where we look at crimes in a location, such as stories from the stage to murder and scandal in the aristocracy. Saturdays is Serial Killer Saturdays, where we investigate serial killer stories from the past. And Sundays is a bit of fun, with a unique mini-murder mystery where you, the listener, have a chance to solve a murderous riddle. On the last Sunday of the month, we offer a two-hour compilation of stories based around a theme. Thank you again for watching and listening. This has been News of the Times, and I am Robin Coles.